my family literally was the uh, paid the price from an environmental burden. Uh, in in something that doesn't get talked about enough in in rural is when the coal ash when the coal companies were were at their big boom, they would make these coal ash pits where they would dump their their waste coal ash. A lot of them are not were not lined to try to save some money, so that arsenic toxic chemical field ash is just sitting in land throughout central PA. The one near, there was one near my grandparents' house, it's uh, that ash leached into the groundwater. Hi there, and welcome back to another episode of Sustaining with Shana, a show where I will share all the amazing and exciting works of sustainability happening across the eastern foothills of the Appalachian Mountains to the lush farmlands of southeastern Pennsylvania. By celebrating our community, we can help to bridge the gap between local and international sustainability endeavors. Today's guest is Michelle Siegel. Michelle is a candidate for Pennsylvania's State Senate District 27. Together, we talked about her experiences of having grown up in that district in what is mostly rural central Pennsylvania, about various issues when it comes to environmental and water contamination that she experienced firsthand with her family, but also other issues as far as low unemployment or poor access to health care. Through it all, we talked about how a rural bill of rights could be a revolution for her district, not just her district, but also across the state of Pennsylvania. Tune in to the rest of the episode to find out more about what the rural bill of rights that Michelle and her campaign are proposing for her district, but also for rural areas across Pennsylvania that don't address just economic issues, but also environmental issues. But before we meet Michelle, let's hear an update about the podcast as well as some important information. Hi, friends and listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. Whether you're here right in southeastern Pennsylvania or in other parts of the country or even places like Western Ireland to uh, places in the South Pacific, thanks so much for tuning in and it's great to see a different variety of listeners, not just here in the, the U.S. but around the world. So with that being said, before we hear from our latest guest, I kind of wanted to give some updates and also some thoughts about what's been going on this week and also providing some important information. That being said, the most important thing I think I would like to start off with this segment is saying that November the 3rd, if you don't know what is coming on November the 3rd, please tune in. 
so November the 3rd is the U.S.'s important general election that's happening. So here in Pennsylvania, we have a multiple uh, variety of different races that are happening, whether it's local, uh, regional, or state races, as well as we will be electing new senators and congresspersons throughout the U.S. and also hopefully a new president in this time. And so this election is critically important for a variety of reasons. And two of them that I'm really trying to advocate for before the general election is talking about climate change and racism and how they are inextricably connected with each other. So that being said, if you live here in Pennsylvania, this information is specifically for you as a voter. So here in Pennsylvania, you have until October 19th to register to vote. October 27th is the last day to request your mail-in ballot and must be postmarked before November the 3rd to be counted. Also, don't forget if you decide to vote in person, Election day is November the 3rd, and polls here in Pennsylvania are open from 7 a.m. to 8 p.m. And if you would like to register to vote or request your mail-in ballot, please go to votespa.com. But also something else to note that's really important with this is here in Pennsylvania, there's been uh, a lot of issues already in the news about mail-in voting in the sense that uh, you as a Pennsylvanian, when you go to vote by mail-in balloting this year, you will get your ballot and then you will also get a secrecy envelope and then you will also get the envelope that is the exterior one that gets mailed to your elections office. Now, between the ballot and the outer envelope is the secrecy envelope that... Uh, basically like hides your vote from anybody if if um, the envelope were to be open in the process of it being received to the elections office, your ballot must be sealed in that secrecy envelope and must be signed, at least here for where I live in the, the county that I'm in. And that secrecy envelope that your ballot is in must be put into the exterior ballot that has the name of your county elections office and in order for it to be mailed. And even if you drop it in the, um, the drop box at your county elections office, if you don't, I repeat, if you don't, your ballot will become illegitimate or deemed illegit illegitimate. I don't understand exactly why, but if your ballot is not within the secrecy ballot, um, your vote doesn't effectively count. So that is something that we need to keep in mind, uh, especially with a lot of us voting right now from home because of COVID-19. Uh, but that's something definitely should think about. And that's not just here in Pennsylvania. That's in a couple states across the country in the U.S. that are doing the same thing. So on to some other stuff in the sense that this 
it feels like it's been a crazy chaotic week lately uh and it's just to see the news about rbg's passing along with other uh environmental issues happening across the country and still in the news about the fact that the west coast is only beginning their fire season and even though what we saw in the news two weeks ago three weeks ago was horrific we still have months ahead of this and for me I think it's really important that we bear in mind that we need to be resilient and this is a long road ahead and when we fight for issues that we're all passionate about and for me a lot of that is talking about climate change and sustainability with you as the listeners but I think it's really important that we understand the connections that a lot of these issues have together. And that's why I'm super excited for today's guest because Michelle Siegel really is a great example of connecting those dots of how economic issues to health issues to environmental issues are all interconnected and how whether it's in urban or rural areas apart, I guess you could even say across Pennsylvania or across the country, are all struggling. And our struggles are, in a lot of ways, are not that much different from each other's. And I think the more that connects us, the less we are divided. And I think that's really important to think about, at least from my personal perspective, going forward in these less than 40 days before the election. And all I can say, my friends, is keep strong, keep trudging ahead, because together we will get through this. So without further ado, let's meet Michelle. Welcome back to another except excuse me. Welcome back to another exciting episode of Sustaining with Shana. And this week I have another candidate that is running for a statewide position here in Pennsylvania. And without further ado, Michelle, please introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, my name is um, Michelle Siegel, and I am a state Senate candidate for the 27th district, which makes up Snyder, Northumberland, Montour, Columbia, and a bit of the Luzerne uh, border on Columbia. So that's I'm, like central Pennsylvania then? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, if you're in the Harrisburg area, like the town I live in is about 50 miles north. Um, we're like between like uh, Wilkes-Barre, State College, Harrisburg, uh, Williamsport, kind of in that area. Mm -hmm. So with all that said, what has influenced you to run for office? So it was, it's a number of things. I mean, the person that I'm running on, the Senate Majority Whip, Mr. Gordner, um, he's been in office as a state senator since 2003, 
and has had no opponent since then. Um, I don't think that that is acceptable the way our system is. People are supposed to have choices, right, at the bare minimum. Number two is I um, was a youth leader and I worked with children with from all ages, all demographics. And I'll just never forget, there was this Wednesday um, when we had youth group and all the kids are playing and it was the parents, everybody was just smiling. It was so good to see. But then like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Who's thinking about these kids' future when we're legislating in Harrisburg, right? That's, that's the issue here. It, we, we can only do so much to protect them as parents and, and community leaders, but if we're not investing in them through, through the government and through our states so that they have a future that we can you know, make them as, uh, as, as strong and independent and, and, and give them the basic tools to be successful, which is going to help our communities in the future and build back our middle class that is just deteriorating, right? This is what is so vitally important to me. I'm also um, an environmental science major. I have a BS in earth and environmental science. Um, I do think we need to start paying much better attention to what we're doing environmentally um, to our states. Uh, and again, that goes back to something too. That affects our children's future, affects our community's future. If, our, if the air we breathe and the water we drink is not uh, safe, we're, we're doing a detriment to the people of the Commonwealth. And for many of us, we have seen this for a long time. We have seen community members, we see, you know, you hear Josh Shapiro gave that great speech, but he talked about how children near these fracking wells, noses are just bleeding in the middle of the night. Mm. You know, that's, it's, our, our rights, and people need to understand this, in Pennsylvania, we're one of the only states that have this, the, the right to clean air, water, and land. Article one, section 27th of our constitution. And we need to remember to uphold that when we're talking about legislation and not skirt environmental policies that protect us. And that is happening so much in this state. It is just it, like I'm smirking, but because it, it's just like it's, it's almost it's almost become like a sitcom sometimes when you're watching. You're just like, are you kidding me? You're you're changing the definition of pollution. You're changing the definition of recycling. This is this is if you were watching this on the show, you would laugh. But this is real life. This is what they're doing down in Harrisburg. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it. It makes me think back to a recent bill that was passed. It was, I think, um, what was it? Senate Bill 730 or, because it was, yeah, it was, as of, I guess, yeah. a watered-down version of how the, the, the Bill 1100, and it's just yep. the fact that there's being subsidies that are taxpayer-funded to exactly. the oil and gas industry. Yeah, and, and the thing is, our tax dollars should go to things that benefit the public good. It should go to education. It should go to investing in, in our communities, in infrastructure. It, it, you know, they, I, I think sometimes people think that people on the left just want to tax, tax, tax. No, we just want the system to go back to working for people and not industry that pay that pay their politicians to give them tax breaks and subsidies. Uh, who's paying politicians to give working people that? Nobody, because we don't have the money. We don't have the power. That's what's missing, the voice of the people back in legislation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and as you're talking about that, I think it's important to note that with your campaign, you're talking about issues like the Rural Bill of Rights. Can you talk more yes. about like what that is, especially when talking about that both from um, both from perspectives that you already mentioned, especially from an environmental perspective? So basically, um, my campaign manager and I, Kristen, were just sitting one day and trying to figure out a way for me to properly articulate my platform and my message in a way that people can, can easily understand it and is driving right to the issues that are affecting them. Mm -hmm. So we came up with this rural bill of rights, which is 10 things that would help rural people. But honestly, it would help anybody in the Commonwealth if we invested in these things. And they, they come out of also a need to protect our children, a need to protect the environment, a need to protect the working people of Pennsylvania. And so these, these 10 things, they, um, what's interesting is they're connected. They kind of all build off of each other. Um, so the, the first one is access to hospitals and healthcare. So in rural right now, we have a huge issue where a lot of our, our hospitals are, are shutting down. And it is becoming a real worry with working people, um, especially in rural, because the next facility is not just a couple blocks away. It can, be, it can mean a 20 minute uh, added to your time to get to in an emergency to an ER. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's not, it sounds like such a small thing, but it's a huge thing in rural. And we constantly feel like this stuff is being taken from us when they close down our maternity care. I mean, that's just very dangerous. I know somebody in rural that had to drive two hours when she was pregnant, um, when she was going into labor because her, the closest maternity facility had been closed down. She was right at top of the Pennsylvania border. Um, so this is something that we need to do better. When you have 50% of, of, of Americans worried, according to a recent Gallup poll, that they're going to go bankrupt because of a medical issue, that's, that's not okay. That's, that is not something we should be worried about. We should not be worried about getting sick to the point that it's, it's, it's going to ruin our lives financially. It is a burden already on working people to deal with a chronic issue. We should not be pulling our hair out worrying, what if it gets worse? What if, what if, what if? And that is the mantra of rural that I hear a lot. And so that's, that's number one. We need to do better to invest in our hospitals and build them up. And the one thing you could do is, is make them more of a critical access point so that like Berwick Hospital in the 27th district is a critical access hospital because it's near a nuclear facility. So it's mm -hmm. designated that the hospital cannot close because it's needed in event of an emergency. Mm -hmm. I don't see why we can't work at a system where we expand that. So these rural hospitals also have more of that protection and just a need for decreasing distance to travel in event of emergency. If you're going into anaphylactic shock, 20 minutes could be a life and death to add on to that travel time. Mm -hmm. um, so, and then number two is access, access to broadband and cell phone service. So rural has known broadband has been terrible for a long time. I think COVID has kind of elevated that point um, for more people to see what was going on here. I know a number of parents that told me, you know, when the shutdown happened, I didn't even educate my kids because we didn't have a reliable internet to, to, for me to, to do it. And it, that's just unacceptable. And people have to understand, 
we the government has has dealt with these issues before successfully they you know fdr brought electricity into rural because there was no financial incentive to get electricity to that farmer on a field on a hill 20 miles away from the next neighbor but it is a necessity and it is needed and the government could do that with broadband and, and expanding cell phone towers so Again, these aren't these aren't things that the government couldn't do or have hasn't done successfully in the past. Um, public transportation, or sorry, yeah, public, public transportation is number three. Public transportation is is a necessity in rural. If you don't have a car, if you don't have a friend that has a car, you can't get anywhere. You can't get uh, to an interview. You can't get to the next hospital that's at the twenty extra minutes away. It's so you can see how if we had number three, it also would help number one, right? It would help people get be able to get better access to healthcare because they would have a, a transportation system to get in there. And we had we had a train system in rural that was a public train system. We don't have that anymore. I mean, these are things that existed. I just would like to see them back. Could we, if we had a, a good solid busing system in, in rural, it would decrease uh, car emissions because people wouldn't be driving as much. It would help our elderly and, and veterans get to appointments and stuff that they wouldn't have to worry about driving and get a ride. It would help um, working families. Uh, it, it just, it would create jobs too. It would create good blue collar, you know, union jobs if we, if we had busting uh, system brought in. Uh, number four is investment in public education. I, this one is one of the most important ones to me personally, being the mother of a nine-year-old little boy in public school. If you're not giving your, your teachers and your school districts the proper tools to educate our kids equitably and fairly, then, then what are we doing? At the bare minimum, that is, is the most important things to make our children successful in this world is to give them a fair, and, and a fair education for all. And it shouldn't matter in Pennsylvania if you live in, in Shamokin versus the borough of Philly, you should be getting the same education. And we need to do better in our, in our state funding back into public education. We are 46th ranked nationally in what the state gives to public education. It's embarrassing. It is embarrassing. And again, that is, it's, it's taking away from our children. And that should outrage us all because at the bare minimum, that is what the world is about, right? Investing in our future. So that's number four. Number five is protection and growth of family farms. It's so interesting being a rural Democrat because the, 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 the group on the other side of the aisle loves to pay lip service to farmers, but they don't actually do anything for them. I get, and I don't get me wrong, the farm bill that they passed a couple of years ago was a great step but we need to do better. We need to do better to protect their lands. We need to do better to make sure that they have, you know, solid business. You know, when COVID hit and the schools were shut down and we had a number of dairy farmers that had to dump milk because they had such a surplus. People don't understand the government used to buy the surplus. If there was too much product on the shelves, the government bought it and they made things like cheese and stuff. There, so there was some, there's things that we, that have been taken away that are, I don't think, explained to people enough so that they understand why the system isn't working. When we have farmers losing land to eminent domain because of a fracking line, I, I, I have a farmer right in my town, right in my neighborhood. And he said, he pointed to his field and he said, do you see those bare spots? And I said, yes, sir, I do. He said, I can never grow on them again. 
They put a fracking line through my land. They, I begged, the, I begged them, take the topsoil, set it to the side, and do not mix it. I will spread it down. You don't even need to touch it. But if you mix those subsoil levels with the topsoil, it will not grow. And he said, they said, oh, sure, sure, sure. He goes, they did not listen to me. That land is gone. And this is what people need to understand is a lot of rural farms have some of the best soil in the world. It is A1 ranked. It is what we talk about when we talk about the Midwest. This is, this is it's, it's, it's a hot commodity. It is something that we need to do better to protect and invest because it's providing us food. It's providing us nourishment. It is giving back. And I would like to see a system that properly invests in our in our schools and our farmers, where our farmers could do more of a, you know, farm to table with school districts. Why can't we have a sustainable solution like that, where the studies have shown if kids are eating fresher food, they're healthier, they're more behaved, they're more focused in schools. They've done this in some school districts in the United States, and the, and the behavior shift in children was off the charts. So there are things we could do to invest in our farmers that would actually give them proper proper investment and not this little lip service that we that we are doing right now. Um, access to good livable wage jobs and worker protections. The, you know, in, in, I am still hearing from nurses and even my mother, my mother is a healthcare worker. She tells me, I still use my single, reuse my single use mask for a week. It's unacceptable. These people are up on the front lines risking their lives. They deserve better. We deserve good livable wage jobs. You know, it's, it, most people in Pennsylvania, I don't think understand that our tipped workers are not covered under the minimum wage. So often they're paid $3 an hour, if not less. And so your tip is actually their salary and not a reward for a good job like most people in Pennsylvania think. And when I've had this conversation with people, they're like, are you, are you serious? I said, yeah. Your, your tip, your tip is not just, uh, 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 you know, saying you did a good job. It is their salary in Pennsylvania. And we, and that's why my family has always made sure when we leave, we probably give, you know, way too much, but I, it doesn't matter if that working person is having a bad day. I would be having a bad day too, if I was paid $3 an hour, right? It's just, we have to do better for working people. Okay. Number seven is, um, infrastructure investment. Rural people have a lot of, of pride in their communities. And when you see a community that's riddled with potholes, when the facades of our buildings are breaking down, it is one of the reasons when Trump came in there to the coal region and said, I'm gonna build back your community. I knew it was gonna resonate because these people take a lot of pride in that. But we're not, you know, the, the state put that gas tax on, on us and right now, what they did is they repealed a 12 cent cap and now we are paying 78 cents. That is, that is $10 for every 10 gallons of gas right now in the state of Pennsylvania, you are paying $8 in tax. And who is that hurting? Working people, rural people that have to drive everywhere. And you could see if we had a public transportation system that would help a little bit on this. But the issue is most people when that tax went through, we're like, look, we understand that that tax is needed because our roads are a mess. Our buildings are falling apart. We need infrastructure investment. But when that money isn't going where it's supposed to, which you know our, our auditor general pointed out, 
That's why people get mad at government. We need to do better to make sure that we're actually living up to the burdensome taxes that we're putting on people. If you're going to put a tax on somebody, make sure it's doing what it's doing and, and, and investing in our infrastructure. And again, you could also add broadband as an infrastructure investment, expanding broadband, expanding cell phone service. These in, in uh, public transportation could also be an infrastructure investment. So as I said, you can see how these all, all kind of build and unite with each other. Number eight is support of local businesses. So I think for a long time, even before COVID, we have seen our rural businesses being shut down. I've, I was at a chamber event where a rural a, a, a business said, look, if we do not fix this broadband issue in, in this area, I don't know if I can keep my business here. I can't, I can't compete without reliable broadband. I can't telework. I can't have my employees telework. And then when COVID hit, it, it just, it, we see even more that, that you, many businesses are right now under the governor's order mandated to do telework. But how can you do that if, you're, if your business isn't in an area where it doesn't have reliable broadband? We need to be doing better for our small businesses. We need to be giving them the opportunity to, to compete on a level playing field. They are not in Pennsylvania when they have corporations paying off our, our, our legislators in Harrisburg to pass subsidies and tax breaks for, for those industries. While our small businesses, where, where, are their, where is their relief? Where is their help? It's been, it's been nada. And it, that has to change. Number nine is access to clean air, water, and land. Again, this is what I was talking about at the, at the beginning. We have the right in that in the Pennsylvania Constitution. We need to make sure that we are upholding that when we're legislating down in Harrisburg, and we're not. When we're changing definitions, when we're saying you can dump fracking water in our rivers, that's people's fish. That's where people fish. That's where people swim. People are, I, I cannot, my husband and I go for walks um, down on this little island where I live all the time. It's beautiful. And every once in a while, I see a family swimming in that water. And it breaks my heart because I want to go get a hazmat suit and put them on, on them. They do not know what is in that water. I, I, there's little, you'll see little foam um, white bubbles along the coast. That is human feces. Um, people don't realize that. Yeah, I, I did not know that myself until an environmental science class when it was on my leg and my professor pulled me aside and said, when you get home, you need to like take rubbing alcohol and like clean that leg off. And I said, why? He said, that's, that's bacteria eating human feces. That's what those bubbles are. Um, and that's, that's horrifying. That is that we have to do better to protect that. Nobody should be worried about their drinking water or their fishing and hunting lands being, being, you know, uh, polluted. Sorry, if you hear my dog, he's scratching. Um, uh, the one thing is, and, and this, this one is very personal to me also, just on a little side note, my, my family literally was the, uh, paid the price from an environmental burden. In uh, something that doesn't get talked about enough in, in rural is when the coal, ash, when the coal companies were, were at their big boom, they would make these coal ash pits where they would dump their, their waste coal ash. A lot of them are not, were not lined to try to save some money. So that arsenic toxic chemical field ash is just sitting in land throughout central PA. The one near, there was one near my grandparents' house. It's uh, that ash leached into the groundwater because I think people need to understand 
the way the circulatory system works underground with uh, our water supply, our groundwater system is very similar to the blood vessel system in your body. You get something, you get a little infection in your toe, it gets in your blood, it's going to go everywhere. It's the same way that our groundwater works the same way. A, a, a spill or something in one place, in one part of the world is eventually going to end up in another part of the world, just the way the, the, the water circulates above and below ground. So that, that coal ash got into the groundwater, it fed it down into the, to the, to the veins and it got up, taken up into my grandparents' uh, well. My uh, grandfather got colon cancer and when my uh, grandmother finally died and the company uh, came in to, to, we had put the land up for sale, the company came in and they said, nobody can ever live here again. So it wasn't even that it's, it was probably much more polluted than we even had any idea that nobody can live on these three to four anchors for the rest of time. Um, and what happened also is my uncle started out with ulcerative colitis. Now my mm -hmm. uncle was a mechanic. He, his medical bills, you know, he fell through the cracks of our system, which we, you know, they didn't have GoFundMes back then. We know a ton of people now that, that uh, make GoFundMes. I think that's actually one of the top ways you can get medical bills paid nowadays is, is a GoFundMe. And we didn't have that then. He had a lot of pride. He didn't let us family know what was going on. His medicals built up. His uh, colitis left untreated, untreated turned into cancer and he died in his 50s. So literally my uncle died for drinking water in the state of Pennsylvania for no fault of his own. And it's just, it's unacceptable. And that water at my grandparents' house, when you would turn on the faucet, it would sting your nose. It reeked to sulfur. We were told you could wash your hands and bathe with it. You could not cook and drink with it. The coal company actually uh, delivered Tovelhawk and drinking water to my grandparents so that um, that's what we used to drink. We were not allowed to consume anything from the faucets. And it's a lot. It was a lot as a kid to, to, to deal with that. And, and you know, my grandmother would take me for walks in the woods. And then one day she took me to the top. And that's when I saw this, this, it was a man-made, it looked like, it, it, they made it really appealing. It looked like a lake. It had a waterfall. And I turned to my grandmother and I asked her what it was. And she told me it was death. And I will, I was about eight or nine years old and I will never forget that. And I, you know, I was not completely understanding what she meant, but as I was growing up and understood the water issue and what was actually going on, that's when I realized what my grandmother was telling me, that that, that was death. It was killing people. Mm -hmm. And their farmers and stuff in this area are, they still have their water is still messed up from this. And these things sit, there's not just one of them. They are all over and they are not being remedied and they need to be fixed because it's, it's literally making people sick. Mm -hmm. And then number 10 is um, upholding of the PA and US constitutions. So this one just goes back to the fact, builds off number nine and just is a reminder that we need to be more cognizant when we're writing legislation about how government works, that we're not taking power from the system that we have in place. We have three branches for a reason that have checks and balances. We need to do better when we're legislating to understand our rights constitutionally and make sure we're upholding that when we legislate. So that's, that, that's, a, that's what that one means. So that's the Rural Bill of Rights. That is something that I think if we took the time and are in Harrisburg invested in, it would help rural communities. It would help anybody. It would help cities too. These are things that would just help working people, our families, our towns, and our children for the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think it's really important to address a lot of those issues. And I think a lot of rural communities get written out of a lot of conversations to a lot of work and it just, I don't know, it's frustrating. It's either the really urban neighborhoods or the very rural neighborhoods. And it seems like suburbia is the ideal place that politicians flock to when yep. you have very urban and very rural on other sides of the spectrum that need to be addressed. Um, and several of your points with your rural b bill of rights, I feel like is important to lift up that there is also similar points in there that go back to the Green New Deal. Because there's a lot of arguments that people have that, well, we can understand the argument about investing in uh, renewable technology, or we can invest in public transportation or hazardous site remediation to uh, investing more in Superfund sites. But healthcare is a key aspect to that. And when we talk about, when, when people talk about, well, what does, what does Medicare for all or healthcare for all have to do anything with environmental or climate change based issues and it really goes hand in hand yeah. and i think it's important not just from like talking about the issues in central rural pennsylvania is i think also we need to use other examples like what's happening right now on the west coast that that is a perfect example of exactly. how we need public health to be a part of the conversation on building a more sustainable future because I can't imagine what all the health issues now will skyrocket because of the hazardous pollution out on the West Coast. Yeah, and the thing is, I am a complete Medicare for all. Like that is, I will, that I will take that to my grave. Nobody can convince me otherwise that we need to do a different system. That's just how I personally feel with what happened to my uncle and I and I what happened to me personally just on a little side story when I was in my early 20s I needed a surgery that a number of doctors said I needed uh, we sent the request to the insurance company with through my my father and they denied it we appealed they denied 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 uh, it was hard on my parents um, watching the insurance they paid into deny their little girl life-saving surgery. It was tough on my doctors who were just beyond frustrated. Like she needs this. Why are we having this conversation? Why are you denying this? What I had to do was uh, declare myself an independent, go off my parents' private insurance and go on Medicaid. Oh my God. And it was the only good thing about it. It was, it was, it was hard. It was a tough thing. But the, the thing that I learned when I was on Medicaid, nothing was denied. I could go to any doctor I wanted to. I didn't have to worry about, or is this gonna is this is this gonna get appealed or is this? There was not, that was such a breath of fresh air as somebody that was dealing with medical issues to not have that worry on was my insurance gonna fight my doctor's orders, and so that to me that that at a young age sealed to me that there is a better system. 
We just need to work to get it implemented. Mm-hmm. And you're, and you're right. It, this is all connected. When we see these wildfires in California and stuff like that, people don't understand that is, that is decreasing air quality. That's going to increase asthma. It, it just, the, it, it might be visually horrifying and it is horrifying to watch. I, I saw a video where there was like a, almost like a, a heat tornado that formed. Oh my goodness. And it just, people need to understand that it's the lasting effects on that. Even when they put that fire out, it's not gone. It's, it's, Mm -hmm. there's damage. There's things we're going to have to do to fix all this stuff. And, and the health and safety of our people because of this is very scary. And I, it just, I think for a lot of us growing up, I mean, I did a lot of my research in climate change. Um, I wrote, I actually wrote a paper, which, uh, debunked 10 things that uh, the sides used to say that climate change isn't happening. So I actually wrote a paper in that and my, she was a amazing professor, but she was one of the hardest professors I had on writing. She was environmental scientist, but she probably should have been an English professor. And I remember she gave me a 95, which was the highest grade in the class. And she goes, it's because you analyzed this and, and used, you know, I used, uh, peer-reviewed studies Mm -hmm. to back up my point. And she said, this is what we need. This is what we need to start doing better. Countering these arguments logically so people understand, no, it's not the sun is warming right now. And it's not the thermometers are different than we used 150 years ago. Like these these little talking points they love to throw out. No, it's, it's happening. We know it's happening. The fossil fuel industry even has admitted that it's happening. And if we don't start doing better to, to fix these problems, it just, it, it's, what future are we going to have for our children? What future are we going to have for communities? It's not going to matter. Nothing is going to matter if we don't do better to protect our earth. You know, my grandmother um, was part Native American and she was a conservationist environmentalist. She, she believed in using the land to grow plants and she would teach me how to pick tea berries and, and she would find walking sticks on trees that I just thought was magical. But she in, in, is invested in me in a young age that this is what you protect. If you don't protect this, what does it all mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I, it's, it just makes me think back to this whole issue of here in Pennsylvania of how we've just taken advantage of what we have or we've taken advantage of the fact that we have such pristine land here in Pennsylvania and water and the fact that the oil and gas company and even before that the coal industry just came in and devastated the state and I I remember I think I was taking an environmental planning class uh, as part of my undergrad where I realized for the first time that Pennsylvania, I think has the most amount of like water, I guess, how would I say like, I guess behind Alaska, we have the most amount of water like still left in our aquifers. Mm -hmm. And just to think that we have such a highly pollutive type of industry that's here right now that can damage that whole opportunity of preserving that. Yeah. And it's, if we don't have water, like, you know, (laughs) 
life will cease to exist. That is, that is why we have life. If we mm -hmm. need to do, I, I mean, when I came out of the earth and environmental sciences program, the things that I realized that we need to make sure we're protecting the most is our water and our soil. We need to be able to sustainably live so that we can grow crops and, and use the same system that many indigenous people were using in, in this country for a long time. And now we're starting to realize that those were the right ways to grow crops. And we need to get back to that. And, and protecting our, our water supply, our water table. I mean, what happened to my family is happening to other families. It's, it's, we shouldn't worry about the water that, that you are drinking every day that could be making you sick. And the reality of the situation is the legislation that they are putting up in Harrisburg is leading to that being more and more and more probable every day, that a lot more people are gonna get sick. I, I, childhood cancers are increasing in Pennsylvania. Um, I believe autism is increasing now in Pennsylvania. It's, you know, talking to, to nurses that take care of rural people, we have so many chronic issues. And I know a nurse that's running um, in another rural district and she said, people don't understand it's if, it, in my mind, it's directly, a, an effect of of the environment and, and what we're doing that so many rural people have such strong chronic issues and again when our air quality too to go the other way in our air our air quality is ranked third worst in the country worst i don't want to make this i can't emphasize it not in the top three good the top three worst and we also have one of the highest level of asthma in the united states do people not understand that those are connected air quality and, and, and asthma are connected. And even there's been some studies that I've read from an environmental standpoint that even um, COVID is actually worse in countries and areas that have poor air quality. So the United States does not have the best air quality all around. Is that also one of the reasons why that this disease is, is just running rampant here too? Like we need to start thinking about that kind of stuff as well. There's other things that are creating a disastrous system all around for us health-wise. And it all goes back to how we're treating the environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, all the dots are for sure connected. Yep. And you can't ignore that. Um, yeah, so when you're talking about a lot of these environmental issues and pollution and the coal industry affecting that, for you personally, what does climate change and then also hydraulic fracturing or fracking mean to you as a Pennsylvanian? And last part of this loaded question is how does that, how has that affected you to want to run for a state Senate? So a little bit different as far as like the environmental aspect to it. So, I mean, it, it's tough, right? Because people, people have this idea in their head that if you, if you put like a severance tack on the fracking industry that they will leave. It is not true. They, we are the only state in the United States that does not have a severance tax, okay? Every other state that has fracking is taxing them. So I, I, I think we need to understand that, that people need to understand that there's a valuable resource under our land that's worth some money. People are not going to leave until they get it. It, I don't, it just, we need to at least at a minimum be putting a severance tax in Pennsylvania 
that could go back to, to fixing some of these environmental issues. Fracking into me is, I am an environmental scientist. I am, I know what it's doing. People don't understand that when you, um, when you're going through rock, all rock, all rock on the earth is a little radioactive. I don't want to, that to scare people. It's just when the, the system that was in place when it was formed, there's a little bit of radiation in every rock. So when you're drilling, you're creating these wells and stuff, and you're drilling through a, a lot of rock, that radiation builds up. And that's why people have talked about while, um, why the drills become radioactive and stuff. It's for that reason. So, and then what does that do? It releases radiation into the water. There are some serious issues that need to be addressed if you want to um, keep this industry even working in Pennsylvania. It must at a minimum be following stringent environmental policy that protects the people. And most industries do have regulation, but in Pennsylvania, what I have seen is them just keep repealing these environmental policies to protect us. And you, you know, there was a huge spill that just happened, the fracking industry down, I think in Ch Westchester or Chester County or something like that. And it, it's, it's unacceptable. And I, I'm, I'm happy to see our attorney general um, going after these companies for, for hurting the people. That, that absolutely should happen. I mean, I just, I guess what I want to see is at a minimum, us t regulating and taxing this industry so that they're our first goal should be protecting the people. And I think that that is the first and easiest way to start managing some of these issues. So it's, it's, it's tough because you have so, Pennsylvania is such a volatile place when you talk about fracking. You have people that are like, well, we, we need those jobs. Well, I need to point out to people that yes, it did create some jobs, but a number of these jobs were actually temporary and were filled by people from Oklahoma and Texas. Uh, my husband worked in Williams, works in Williamsport, and he said, you know, it was booming for two years while they were building all this up, and then all those people left. So um, that's, that's, the, we are a commonwealth. We, everything is supposed to be for the common good. So when you have a company coming into the, this, this state, in this commonwealth, and using our resources and not uh, protecting the people or giving back for using that resource, it's in direct violation of founding principles of Pennsylvania. They should be paying us a tax for using our resources so that we can use that money, invest in our schools, invest in infrastructure, and, and make Pennsylvania better. I mean, look at, look at Alaska. I mean, Alaska is known for its, 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 its regular oil gas industry, right? And there's citizens of, of, at least the citizens of Alaska get a nice check <laughs> back for that, the companies using their resources. So, I mean, at a minimum, this is the kind of stuff we should be doing. Should we go farther to protect our health? Sure. But it's, it's not, it, you cannot start having this conversation until we bring everybody to the table. We bring labor, we bring environmental groups, we bring legislatures and, legislators and say, how can we remedy this that is going to work out a solution that, that figures out how we, everybody is happy? And I, I, I firmly believe there is a solution if we tax and, and made sure they kept stern environmental regulation and policies that protect our constitutional amendment. And if they don't, 
then we don't start need to having a serious conversation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So in addition to that, before I, I wanted to follow up with a question of that, um, what about the climate change portion of that? The question as far as like, what does it mean to you? And especially like, uh, why, why is that a concern of yours? And how would you apply that concern as a state senator? I mean, the climate change is a, is a huge problem. The problem is with a lot of people in Pennsylvania is when you bring up climate change, they immediately want to say, well, India and China, India and China, if they don't do anything, what's the difference? But people need to understand climate change is vexing Pennsylvanians already. Uh, flooding is hurting our farms. There's a lot of flooding that get, doesn't get talked about enough. And then the droughts we have, we are feeling these effects. We need to be electing people. And one of the reasons I decided to run is we need to be electing people that want to represent the people and not an industry. And that's what's happening in Harrisburg. And I think one of the best ways that we could combat climate change in this state and even nationally would be to stop taking money from these industries that want us to vote a certain way. If we want meaningful legislation that is going to protect Pennsylvanians and working families, then we need to stop taking money and writing policy that benefits that industry over others. And that's, you can't, you can't keep subsidizing an industry to keep them um, viable on the market. It's, it's, it, when we know that green energy is becoming very competitive. We know that that is the way to go. We just need to have the strength, the resilience, and the bravery that us Pennsylvanians have had for generations to just make that investment. And that's one of the reasons that, that, that I'm running because I believe that there's other choices. I believe that there's a better way. I believe we can combat climate change. We can combat our local environmental issues in a logical and reasonable way that, makes, that can make everybody happy, but we can't do that unless we are electing people that are saying, no, I'm not taking this money from that industry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and with all of that said, and just to like clarify what you mentioned earlier. So I know like there's, there's been a lot of heated discourse about the whole idea of a severance tax on the industry or taxing the industry in general, because you have some environmentalists that stress the importance of a severance tax and then you have other environmentalists that are concerned if you tax the industry they'll stay here forever or the fact that in the sense what i mean by that is our politicians allow them to stay forever because we're getting money from the industry so I see both sides of that coin. Exactly. But at the same time, I guess for you personally, with if Pennsylvania did institute a severance tax on the fracking industry, what is your hope to, what's your hope for the next step in the sense that if we do institute a severance tax, that 
the Pennsylvania legislature is not like, oh, just stay here forever because we're taxing you, regulating you. Like, what do you, what's your hope after a severance tax that we can actually finally push them out? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think what I'm trying to say is a, a severance tax is needed to help uh, remedy these some of these environmental issues. And the way our state is, is set up, that investment could use to be benefit the people. At the minimum, a, a severance tax could go back and help the people. And that's why I fear personally that that, that is needed. I don't think a severance tax, I, I mean, if, I guess I, for me personally, that would not be my end goal, right? Like if, if that would not be who I am personally, oh, they're yeah. paying a tax, they can stay here for generations. I still think we need to be working out a system for the future that is built on sustainable and renewable and diversified energy. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's for me, I guess if the, so just so people know, that wouldn't just be the end all be all for me yeah. personally. Yeah. 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 I think, yeah, I just, I, I believe they should be paying that severance tax because at a minimum, that's what they owe us. Right. But mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that I don't believe we should be investing and moving on and, and, and thinking about our future. I think we can do all this. I think we can check all these boxes. I don't think it has to be an either or. I think we can take every environmental group's concern and make sure we're legislating in a way that says, yes, you need to, if you're going to use our resources, you need to be paying the people something for them. You need to be following environmental policy that protects the people. And, but we also should be working to, to move Pennsylvania to, to, to the future. And I get it. It's scary, right? You know, when we, we burned wood and then we went to coal and it's, it's scary and these changes are scary, but we've done it. It, it happens. This is the, the human find new energy sources. And, but what we shouldn't do is if you're allowing one industry to go into Harrisburg and, and legislate and write policy that benefits that energy industry, you're not creating a, a market that would allow other cleaner energy sources, even cleaner energy sources, a chance to grow and expand. So we need to still be working on that. We, mm -hmm. it's not, to me, it's not an either or. So yeah, yeah. I just want to get that straight. That's not, yeah. I wouldn't just be like, oh, they're, they're paying a severance tax. It's over. They can stay in Pennsylvania for a year. I think that the reality of the situation is, and even, even the fracking industry understands that other energy sources are becoming more competitive, competitive on, the, on the market, and, and there's going to be a natural progression that way. Even if, it, even if we are reluctant to think that it's going to happen, it's just the natural in the, in the, in the way uh, energy has, has worked in the United States for generations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think all of that's an important note to make uh, and to step back here for clarification. Because I know that whole severance tax has been a heated issue, especially if you've closely followed fracking here in Pennsylvania for the last 10, 15 years. But as of right now, A, we don't tax the industry. Yeah. And better yet, B, we subsidize the industry. Exactly with taxes that the taxpayers and individuals of Pennsylvania pay. Yep. So making the point of first, they need to pay those subsidies back yeah. at the bare minimum, but then kind of working towards that, I think is a really important point to make because I've 
I've known about the whole fracking issue. And I mean, I was at anti-fracking protests in high school, yeah. right when uh, Rendell started to lift a lot of those restrictions. And then Corbett just was like going hog wild with it. That from day one, it was always like, well, if they're here, we should tax them. But if they're here, we shouldn't because they'll stay here. But I think it's important to make note of what you're saying is we have to start from somewhere to get to another place. We have to start somewhere to get to somewhere else. Yeah, and I think what I also am trying to say is that resource under our our land is – they're not going to leave whether we tax them or not. So in my mm-hmm. mind, at a minimum, we should be taxing them, right? Like, yeah. they're, like <laughs> I, I, I don't see any difference. I don't think that a, a tax is, is going to increase them leaving. I don't think it's going to decrease them leaving. I think they're here. They want that resource. So at a minimum, we should be taxing them so that we can at least get something that, to, to, to go back into the system and fix some of these environmental issues that, that the damages we already had, invest in stuff that will help, you know, get some of that money back into public education, get some of that money back into infrastructure. So mm-hmm. I, I, I think that's what I'm trying to say here. Like, it, it, at a minimum, uh, uh, they should be taxed because they are not going anywhere, right? And I don't, I don't think that that is going to decrease or increase them leaving, so. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's a fair point, and I... I was just curious um, when I saw that on your website and just wanted to hear in your own words as far as like where you're coming from with that. Um, There was something I was, oh, just realizing as you were talking about this, uh, stepping back here as far as like the regional greenhouse gas inventory, so Reggie, the -hmm. fact that Pennsylvania is the last one in this uh, Northeast Mid-Atlantic region to join that and how on the other side of it, how Pennsylvania is losing economic opportunities because states like Connecticut to New York to Massachusetts are pushing further towards green technology and sustainable energy and but Pennsylvania has to do things in order to get there to still be a part of that. And the fact that they're even late to the game shows that we need to make a significant change and we have to start somewhere. Well, I mean, in that, that, that legislation, that heart is horrifying. I mean, that takes, that the, the the one of the horrifying things in that legislation that came up that scares me even more than than slowing down Pennsylvania getting into the, the Reggie mm-hmm. is it takes power away from the DEP and environmental groups to make these choices and says it all needs to go through to through the to through the legislature and that's not the way the system is supposed to be set up they're supposed mm-hmm. to be checks and balances and the DEP's mm-hmm. job is to perfect the environment they're the ones that should be making the environmental calls, right? So that's, that's what it concerned me a lot about when I look at that bill, that we're, we're taking 
power away from the, the groups that are jobs to protect us from, from environmental stuff. So mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, it, that, that is a mess. And again, it's also even taking away from the executive branch's power to make that choice, to, to put us in that, in that agreement, which I, I mean, I, I think people can see that if you want to be competitive, right? Sometimes if all the other states are doing it, you need to join that stuff so that you can be competitive on that market or whatever the, the long-term goal is or for whatever plan they choose. So I, I don't understand why we have to just make everything so complicated. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we shouldn't, again, I'd like to use the phrase that Pennsylvania is not a leader anymore, we're a lagger. And there's a prime example, all those other states signed on and we're still shuffling our feet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I mean, it, it makes complete sense. And uh, in a similar sense, uh, but just like specific here to Pennsylvania, I remember last year I was at a regional sustainable energy conference and how I guess it was a woman from the governor's office that came to speak about the latest um, climate action plan that I guess was released last year and how she was so excited to say, oh, well, we're reducing 30% of our emissions by 2050 to back to pre-1990 emissions levels or whatever. And I raised my hand and I was like, 30% by 2050? Like the whole standard of the rest of the world and other parts of the country, yes, this is even slower behind what the climate scientists have said and the IPCC report has said, but the, there's talk about other states and other countries getting to 20 at 2050 of being net zero and Pennsylvania is the 19th largest economy in the world yeah well no I I, I agree I mean I don't think that people yeah. understand I, I mean people throw around these numbers and it makes it sound wonderful but it's people don't understand it's it's not it's not far enough <laughs> I mean it sounds good but I went to a lot of the 350 at Columbia University um, speeches. It was phenomenal. My husband and I went, um, I think it was like 2008 or 2009 in the summer at Columbia University in New York City. And it just, it, you know, people don't understand that. And I, I guess the best way for me to articulate this to people is, people are like, why don't you panic all the time, right? If there's all this environmental stuff going on, if climate change is really this bad, why are you not panicked? Well, I am. I just, something that gets, is truly amazing to me that I don't think gets talked about enough is how well the earth is putting up with what we're doing. Um, I, I cannot reiterate that enough. The reason why this destruction that uh, scientists think is gonna happen and people are like, well, I don't see it. I didn't see it. It was supposed to have in the 70s, it's supposed to have in the 80s, it's supposed to have in the 90s. It's because the earth has been doing a very good job at mitigation and we don't thank the earth enough for that. 
but we already crossed that tipping point, right? Right now mm -hmm. it's just what's going to happen. Are we going to at least uh, combat this and take it seriously so that we can fix whatever we have left? Because the damage is done. There, it's the, you're not going to fix this issue now and, and see it with our generation. Now our future grandchildren, great-grandchildren, they could benefit if we make these policy changes now. And I think too many, many Americans think, well, I don't see it. I'm not going to see the effect. Why should I care? If we believe in our future, if we believe in our children, our great children, our grand, grand, great grandchildren, that's how you legislate. Mm -hmm. And that's how you fix this issue. And that's how I tell people all the time as an environmental scientist, you should go out every day and thank the earth for, for putting up a fight because she is, she is, I, I cannot emphasize that enough. Uh, we wouldn't be here if, the, if she wasn't figuring out ways to, to suppress some of these effects. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's why I'm going to keep fighting, right? I think there is a better future. I think there's a better future for all of us. I think there's a better future that takes these issues and comes up with reasonable and rational responses that aren't big, scary words. I know people hear Green New Deal and stuff like that, and they just like, oh, it's so left, it's so left. We've done this stuff before. We've had a new deal before. We've had policies before that, in the end, ended up benefiting the people once they were in place. They sounded big and scary, but even Eisenhower did a huge uh, infrastructure investment when he was uh, president, a Republican, and the, and the government made a lot of money off of it back. There's, there's ways to do this stuff. There's ways to properly run things that will take our environment, our health, and our future wrap it all together and give us the best fighting chance going forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, one, one thing I would only lift up to that is um, when you talked about the green new deal and, and people thinking this is unrealistic or a lot of these other issues, like even uh, instituting the federal highways and stuff like that is somebody asked Bernie Sanders, I think this is while he was still running this election cycle for president, that somebody said, well, isn't the Green New Deal unrealistic to fund or unrealistic to pay for? And he's like, and I could be getting this wrong to some degree, but he's like, well, what's the other choice? Or what is going to happen if we don't? Is, are we going to see what's happening right now out in California in the Pacific Northwest happening on a daily basis? Yeah, and basis? All that in Australia, I think people forget. Do, do people not remember how much of Australia was on fire not too long ago? I mean, it's happening, right? We just, I think people come from, I think people... Compartmentalize. I can't say that. Compartmentalize. Word. Yeah, exactly. Compartmentalize. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. I was up early this morning for it. It's okay. Now shutting down. People take it and they put it off in their brain. They're like, it's not affecting me right now. It's not affecting me right now. I don't need to worry about it. But it is. It is affecting you. You just are not. You're just not necessarily seeing it right before your eyes. Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to start realizing. To to invest in a future that benefits all equitably, fairly, and invests in people, we need to just take that 
and say, even though I don't see it, I still feel it. I still know that there's a movement that this problem needs addressed. And that's what like people are basis of why did you do the Royal Bill of Rights is I think that campaigns and something that Bernie did really well, he created a movement. Mm -hmm. That is what campaigning should be about. It shouldn't be about what me, 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 what I, what, what I, I can't, this is, I can't tell you running for office. I can't stand like all the interviews, always being out in public. Uh, it's just, that's, I'm not, a, I'm not somebody that likes the spotlight that much, but I understood that somebody needed to take this risk on and somebody needed to stand up and, and do it. And I, I, I thought if I'm going to run for office, I'm going to create a movement, a people movement. I'm not just going to make it about me. I want it to make it about for the public good. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like that's, that's a perfect way to sum it all up. And before kind of wrapping up uh, the rest of the interview, I do have one last uh, big question to ask is once elected, what is your first goal in addressing a lot of these environmental issues to climate-based issues uh, to the Pennsylvania Senate? So what I, what I would like to see, and I think what, what legislators need to do is we bring the people down and we write a policy that brings in everybody from all walks of the aisle, environmentalists, workers, everybody, we write legislation that is gonna make both sides happy and that's what we put out. That is what I would wanna work on from the beginning. It's the same thing with uh, successful legislation for anything. I think we should take the people that are directly involved, have them a seat at the table so that they can explain and fill in the gaps that I might, I don't know what, I don't have every answer, right? I'm not, I'm not a, a magician, but I can, I can utilize my resources and talk to the people that have a good plan and figure out how to implement that. And I want to see that done in Harrisburg. I want us to start pushing out policies that are going to take our environment and protect and, and to remedy these, remedying these uh, coal ash pits would be a, a huge personal uh, goal for me. But again, how would I write legislation to fix that? I would want the people that understand the collage pits, understand the issue at the table with me, figuring out a, a, a way to remedy it in a logical, cost-efficient way so the taxpayer money isn't wasted. So I guess it's a, it, I don't know if that's a, a too vague of an answer for you. It's, it's, there's so many things I want fixed environmentally. I don't know which one I would go for first. But I guess at a minimum, start making sure we're legislating better to, to put up legislation that protects our water table at a minimum needs to happen right off the bat. No, I, th I think that makes sense. And I think it's really, I think it's really important to be cognizant of the fact that we haven't really done a great job of putting the environment first, first in a lot of legislation here in Pennsylvania. So even just the fact of sitting down and trying to achieve a way to make that happen is important. Yeah, it, you're exactly, and that's exactly what I'm saying. I think we'd have to bring a bunch of groups to the table and figure out how we could do this successfully so that everybody is working together instead of butting heads, which is what happens down in Hattiesburg, and, and figure out a way to go forward where we're all on the same page 
and write meaningful legislation that's going to address these issues to better our future. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So before asking a little more fun and lighthearted questions at the end, uh, do you have any last thoughts? Um, just, you know, sign on to the Rural Bill of Rights. We have a, an action uh, uh, network uh, like petition. You can sign on to call for this in Harrisburg. You can find that on my Facebook page at Siegel for Senate PA. Um, I'm on Twitter at Senate PA and on Instagram at Siegel for Senate PA. Um, my website is michellesegelforpasenate.com. Follow me, learn more, help with the campaign. You know, we're always looking for people to phone bank because of COVID. You know, it's not a normal uh, year to, to, to do the normal things that people have done for campaigns. So we got to think outside the box this time. And also, if, if you know, we have an event in Harrisburg on Thursday um, where we're going to go down to Harrisburg and demand a, a Bill of Rights and, and ask our legislators to start thinking about us, thinking about the environment, thinking about workers, thinking about our children when they're, when they're writing policy. And so that's, I guess I would have thrown that in here quick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this episode will probably air after okay. the event um, in Harrisburg. But all that being said, if you have information after the event's over that I could I could also share that. Yeah, I mean, we're going to keep the petition going too. Like, so yeah. the, the, to sign on to the petition is not going to just stop on Thursday, so. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. Uh, and I will add all that information as far as uh, where people can go to find you too in the description of the episode and okay. all of that. Okay, so uh, for a little more lighthearted question is what is your definition of sustainability? So for me personally, it, it's, it's this idea in, in, in investing in a equitable, fair future that protects us environmentally. I know this isn't the real definition, but this is the way I like to think of it in my head when I talk about sustainability. I just, it, to me, it's about future. It is, if you want to sum it up in one word, it's, it's investment, in, it's future. It's, it's, mm -hmm building a, a future that is just and fair and benefits all. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's perfect. And you answered the next question I was going to ask is oh. if you could put it all together in one word. Yeah. 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 For me, it's future. I mean, that's when I think of sustainability, I think of future. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so with that, and I think that's a really important way to look at it because sustainability is more than just a textbook definition and it always changes but i think it's important to look at how we can sustain ourselves across multiple generations and especially like when thinking about that and how quick cycling back to the pennsylvania constitution article 1 section 27 that not only do pennsylvanians have a right to clean air and clean water and a healthy environment, not just for now, but in that amendment in the Constitution, it says for future generations too. Yep. So I think that's really important that exactly. you emphasize that. Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. I mean, it's 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 to guarantee these things are here for for our future. That's a very good point. Yeah. 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 So, if you have a favorite 
vegan dish, what would it be? Well, I have a little bit of a guilty pleasure. I like those, uh, those um, vegan chicken nuggets. Like I am obsessed with them and I probably eat way too much of them. <laughs> like, I just love them. I, I just, I, the one, like, I love, side note, gross, too much information from a, somebody running, but I cannot stand when you get, when you got meat chicken nuggets and they have that fatty part and you, oh my God, as a kid, when you'd go to make the, oh my God, it grossed me out so much as a kid. And then yeah. I found that there was vegan version of that and I wouldn't have to worry about that and they taste the exact same way and it was just like the best thing that I've ever found so that is my little guilty pleasure that I love yeah yeah I've heard about like vegan alternatives to chicken nuggets but I feel like the fast food chicken nuggets themselves are like the the crappy food that they like serve you in school when you're yeah. in grade school like school lunches that it's like that's already, that's already ruined it for me. So yeah, I can't even I know, imagine. I know, I know. A vegan option. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, if you weren't running for office, and if you could do anything to address these issues, I guess what would be your ideal or dream way of like? having a job in sustainability? So I, I actually wrote um, a musical on climate change. Uh, the, the summer camp that I work with with kids, they performed it two years ago. It's called Alice in Climate Land. Hmm. It's, it's funny and it's, it basically teaches kids the basic principles of climate change so they understand the science behind it a little bit. Um, and what I would like to do is work on, uh, I had talked to some groups before I decided to run about possibly getting it performed more across Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. And I actually had a number of parents that were at the event. And after watching, they're like, I didn't understand climate change. And this explained it to me in a way that I, I get it now. Mm-hmm. Like I get it. Mm-hmm. And I would like to even see that. I talked to a local artist about having it made into a children's book and expand it. Because I think um, educating and explaining to people the science behind it kind of takes the fear away and will help people understand on how you remedy the solution is understanding how it works. Mm-hmm. So I think I would spend my time um, going forward, investing in, in, in getting back into to the education aspect of it. That's a really exciting and, and different way to look at it. Like I never thought about not just like Education is so important. I think children definitely need to be educated on these issues, including adults, but to apply it to a musical sounds really interesting. I'll have to, I'll have to send you the link then so you can watch it's, it. I think it is on YouTube still, um, the performance and the songs that uh, I worked with a professor at Susquehanna University on the music. And it's the song that Alice sings, it's like demanding change. It's, it, it, she's, she's standing there and she's been through uh, climate land and seen how messed up. And if we don't, we don't deal with it, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. And she makes the, the song that, that, that the music professor wrote is beautiful. And I think it should, it should be a, in a musical nationally. It is that good. Yeah. And it was an interesting way. I'm not going to lie. And it, it, you know, it was an interesting way. I wanted to see 
if we did something like this, how successful would it be? And it, the, again, the most rewarding thing was having parents literally come up to me and said, I never understood climate change, but now I get it. And the kids even saying to me, and we ha would have discussions about why this is happening and why that is happening. And, and you know, there, there's comedy in it. There's uh, uh, Tweedledee and Tweedledum argue about, is it too hot? Is it too cold? Something's not right. The weather is too bold. They have a fun discussion. It did, but it was a great way to, to open up a dialogue with, with, with kids because they, they've heard of climate change. They, but explaining to them the basic science behind it gives them the tools they need that they can carry that in their future and understand what actually is going on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's, that's so well said. And I feel like that's a perfect way kind of to wrap it all yes. up is, is it's just, I think we need to keep in mind how we educate the next generation. Yep. Because they're going to inherit all of this. Exactly. The good and the bad. Yeah. Well, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on an episode of Sustaining with Shana and sharing your story and getting to hear more about your campaign and why you really want to go to Harrisburg and not just advocate for people in your Senate district, but also for all of Pennsylvania. And just to uh, refresh with the listeners is that Michelle is running for PA Senate District 27, which is in central Pennsylvania and focuses in areas like Bloomsburg and Sealands Grove and Shemokin, which is also not just a farming community, but also part of the coal region yep. and a uniquely has a unique dichotomy to it for mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Yep. It's, it's, we have a little bit of everything out here in rural. That's what makes it so amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it, Shanna. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for listening to another episode of Sustaining with Shana. You can now listen to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor.fm, and many other platforms. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and, of course, leave a review or comment. To follow us on Facebook or Instagram, go to sustainingwithshana.com. Also, what you read and listen to here on the platform was carefully created and curated content made just for you, the listeners. Any generous donations can help to keep me supplying you with great content. Just go to Sustaining with Shana's website. Click on the donate page to donate. Glad you're here. Thanks a million for listening.